don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit, like... Uh... So hello, welcome to the end of the world. Uh, this is Anthropocene's episode four. Uh, today we're talking about Darren Aronofsky's 2017 uh, head trip, uh, mother, mother, exclamation point. Um, and it's a, you know, we started with First Reformed, which was kind of indie darling film, and then moved on to Interstellar, which was this big blockbuster, and now we're in Mother, which is sort of in between? Yeah, it's it's certainly, it, it got a wide release in theaters. We were able to see it here, yeah, you know, in town, so it's, uh, it, it got a wide release, but it did very poorly, and... Um, I think was hated by just about everybody. <laughs> yeah, I know it has a, according to Wikipedia, it has generally favorable reviews on Metacritic, I think, or it has like a 70% on Rotten Tomatoes okay. or maybe higher. So that's, was, that's a lot better than I was thinking. When it yeah. came out, it was, uh, uh, and maybe that's just a testament to the type of people I'm talking to about, <laughs> about movies uh, when they come out. I don't know. Uh, seems like most of the people I talked to hated it. Um, these were the same people I think I mentioned last week who loved Interstellar. So. <laughs> yeah, so it's very much a different a different crowd uh, that that we're talking about. Um, and I think a, a big part of people who did like it, part of them liking it, was that it was presented as being kind of a, a horror movie. The trailer um, is definitely uh, made to seem like a horror film. Yeah, and it's it's referred to usually as a, a psychological horror film, which we can we can talk about whether or not that's a useful way of thinking about it, kind of as we get into the meat of it here. But where we're going to start off is uh, this review that we talked about back when the movie came out, and then we were talking about it before we started, of uh, Rex Reed writing for The Observer. Rex can't read. Is Rex joke. can't read. Uh, so, for The Observer writing this review entitled, Mother is the Worst Movie of the Year, Maybe Century. Um, so he, did, you, he, he didn't see uh, You Don't Mess with the Zohan. He didn't see, yeah. Uh, sorry, put my phone. Um, so, he hated the movie, and if you know anything about Rex Reed, which I didn't, and I had to look around a little bit, um, he's a very prolific movie reviewer. If you read his bio on the Observer website, it mentions things like he's a he's one of the most recognizable film critics in America, which is not true because I'd never heard of him until this <laughs> point. Um, I don't I don't read a whole lot of. It's film like reviews. off the top of my head, I'm like Pauline Kael, David Denby, David Travers, right? Uh, Peter Travers, Peter Travers, Rolling yeah. Stone, Leonard uh, Maltin, Ebert and Roper, <laughs> like yeah. going way back. Yeah, come on now. Um, so, writing for the Observer, and just to to trash read a little bit more, um, we did read an article from was it the Mary Sue I think yeah um, where the um, and I can't remember the name of the author but she's talking about how she's shocked that he still has a job because she, she calls him human disaster Rex Reed yeah and and his reviews like if you read them they're just the most pretentious crap like this is a he, he likes his juicy like metaphors for how bad something is mm-hmm. um, but uh, in this review for Mother um, he starts it off by saying from the idiotic drug addict hokum requiem for, 
for a dream to the overrated, overwrought, and overhyped Black Swan, which I called a lavishly staged repulsion in, to in toe shoes, the films of whack-job Darren Aronofsky have shown a dark passion for exploring twisted souls in torment. This is stuff like in English 101, your, your professor would be like, this is a little bit too biased. Um, <laughs> yeah. He says, stealing, from, stealing ideas from Polanski, Fellini, and Kubrick, he's jerry-built an absurd Freudian nightmare that is more wet dream than bad dream with the subtlety of a chainsaw. Right. Uh, Listen to his gloss of the substance of the film. You were, you were saying there was something about where he like lists potential interpretations, like a very small mention for like environmental. Uh, yeah. Um, so, okay, so here's the paragraph. He says, Although you will spend most of the painful, torturous, and stressful two hours it takes to survive, Mother, trying to figure out what it's all about, I advise you to ignore the reviews entirely and make up your own fantasy. One critic says the satire on the chaos the dysfunctional world has been turned into by Donald Trump. Another says the title refers to the role played by Jennifer Lawrence, the director's current personal squeeze and cinematic muse, whom he slobbers over in endlessly annoying close-ups that emphasize her flaws and rob the viewer of the power of self-discovery. One reviewer says she plays, she plays the quintessential Earth Mother, who works feverishly to restore balance to a planet Earth that is being constantly torn apart by wickedness, wickedness and savagery. I love the review that compares the movie to the, quote, lancing of a boil. They all insist Mother is a metaphor for something, although they are not quite sure what it is. And then he goes on to say the one thing he agrees with, agrees with is that it's original and that it, it's shot well, and he likes the camera work. It's kind of the one thing he, he cool. grants the movie. Um, but he gives this series of readings that are, you know, they're all, um, I think, relevant readings. They can all be supported with things from the film and mm -hmm. just kind of shoots them down one by one, like... Well, even, Come on, guys. Even the one and he, the the one he said about Donald Trump, he's trying to make that sound ridiculous. But I was reading a, an interview with Aronofsky, and he specifically said, "We made this in the final year of Obama, and it's coming out in the first year of Trump." Like he is contextualizing his own movie in you know in terms of who's the president because because it's inherently political. Because it is about all the envir the environmental things that he, you know, dismisses there. Yeah, and all these, and like you're saying, these can be backed up by things that people involved with making the movie say. So you have, like what Aronofsky said um, that you were just talking about, you have Jennifer Lawrence in an interview saying that she played the Earth Mother, yeah, basically, yeah, they're, like they're, spelling it out for them. Yeah, they, Lawrence and Aronofsky were actually, uh, it was almost a little off-putting how direct they were you don't often see <laughs> directors and, and actors be so so direct with uh you know stating what a movie is they'll be like oh well it's you know it's up for the viewer to decide they're, they're like no this was a movie about this is a climate change parable this is a biblical allegory um uh, and, and it's like i said it's like it's like rex reed is just like on his phone while he's watching it and like writing the review as he's watching it because uh, in fairness, it does take a little bit the first time you watch this movie to to get your you know get a hold on what's going on, um, but then once once you get it, it's right there. Yeah, and and it's the whole movie. Um, so I think to me his reviews, unless he's just you know not intelligent, <laughs> uh, it seems like his review probably suffers from just not enough time elapsing between viewing and and writing 
uh, I don't know how you miss that so egregiously when when it's your job to you know to understand a movie yeah because it's like you're saying he's either an idiot or lazy but in this review he just comes off as a, a lazy idiot mm-hmm. who didn't do any who of quotes the work himself. yeah who quotes himself because <laughs> um, when we saw this film like you're saying once you once you get it you start to see it kind of really clearly and it and I don't know if you had this when you were rewatching it but when I was rewatching it for this episode I found that a lot of it seems kind of um, obvious, I guess, or like maybe uh, ham-fisted is not the right word, but when you see it for a second time and you have it kind of in your head, you're like, oh, yeah, obviously. Like, how did I ever think this was anything else? Exactly. And like maybe the first half of the movie that I, the first time I saw it, I thought, or even the first three quarters, I was paying attention mostly to how... um, to how the issue of like artist and celebrity were being portrayed. But then once, you know, we, a bunch of us talked about it and, you know, we sort of saw the, you know, the religious allegory going on. You, you apply that perspective to the things you weren't thinking about for the first half of the movie. Like, Oh, clearly that's what this yeah, is. Obviously. And, and, and the second time you watch it, you're like, like you said, of course this is what it is. Yeah, and we watched it. We all went and saw it as a, as a group and then talked about it pretty much for the rest of the day. Or week. Um, yeah, just, yeah, just kept going back to going back to and going back to it. And I remember we went to a party at a friend's house that night, and the first thing we did when we got there was kind of like stand around the fire they started. And we're like, so what What the hell was that? Call the <laughs> right, right. Um, and that's when we had... Uh, when I first was told about the all the biblical allegory stuff, which I just didn't, for some reason, just flew over my head the first time I saw mm. it because I'm I'm an idiot, I guess. And I was like, oh my god, it all makes so much sense. <laughs> right, um, right. So, you just wonder how someone who make who gets paid to have thoughts about movies in writing doesn't uh, doesn't have, have a conversation. Yeah, it doesn't have a conversation with people. You know, before he writes it, I don't know. I don't mean to take a giant shit on Rex Reed. Oh, I do. I totally do. Okay, well, then I do too. <laughs> yeah, we, we do not endorse the official stance of Anthropocene's podcast is fuck Rex Reed. Yes. Um, so, it, and, you know, it makes sense given that Aronofsky's coming off of Noah when he's making this, um, which was another kind of big flop of his, I guess. Yeah, and people don't like when you treat religious source material as fictional source material that is yeah. open to uh, reinterpretation, reinterpretation and artistic license yeah. because I mean he's got uh, Noah I actually liked Noah um, it wasn't bad it was just it was maybe I don't know it, it wasn't weird enough I guess I guess mother is just Weird enough. Where it, yeah, Noah Noah had to have the pretenses of blockbuster mm-hmm. just because it's such an epic story and so recognizable. And you got Russell Crowe, you yeah. know, and these you know big name stars. So uh, yeah, it was sort of it was like the movie couldn't decide if it wanted to be like daring or or a blockbuster. Daring Aronofsky. You beat me to it. <laughs> um, yeah, you have the scene of like the the rock angels, the I forget what they're called, just like beating the right. hordes of. I don't remember that in the there. Bible. Therefore, this movie is terrible. Yeah. Um, whereas in Mother, he's doing a lot of uh, 
reimagining and kind of so Noah and Mother are both these kind of environmental parables that Aronofsky's really into now that seems to be his thing mm-hmm. that he does uh, he's very into environmental causes he you know on Anthony and Bourdain's show they went to first to Madagascar and then to uh, Bhutan and they talk about climate change issues there mm-hmm. um, I was telling you about the show he produced called One Strange Rock where it's a kind of a documentary series that Will Smith hosts and it has a lot of things to say about about earth and about um climate change so mother as an environmental parable it it kind of it helps to think about it in the sense that he's not or at least it helps me to think about it as him not doing a a one-to-one correlation being saying i'm going to retell the bible or the biblical narrative of creation or whatever and instead thinking about it as that's kind of the framework that he's working in yeah and it's it's almost um you know, he condenses it. It's a, I was thinking that the, the word microcosmic is like what this movie is. Like the, everything yeah. is just uh, reduced to, you know, to this sort of house in the country, a couple living there. He's like, I'm going to use this and tell, you know, this grand story. Uh, but everything is just a microcosm of the, of the larger story he's telling. And, and it makes a lot of sense if you think about it in terms of a time scale um, where, you know, the, the time of human beings on this planet is relatively small compared to the rest of the time. Right. The yeah, planet. that's a good point. So prehistory, most of this movie is kind of prehistory. Mm-hmm. And then once humans show up, it it's, moves really it's quickly. great acceleration. Oh, yeah, yeah definitely. Because <laughs> yeah. um, in the film, you know, like you're saying, microcosmic, I think, is a really good way of putting it where you have these little events that lasts just a few seconds, but they're representative of everything, all oh, yeah. human activity. Yeah, one one great moment is when when uh, we'll have to say either Mother or uh, Lawrence because they don't have names. It's her yeah. and him, or the yeah. poet. I guess they call him the poet. Anyway, uh, when she's walking through the house and you see for the first time someone leading a dance and song. That oh, is inspired yeah. by the new book that the poet has published. They have it on the right the, the stick, and, and it's just like, you know, three hundred years of like church being, <laughs> you know, coming into existence and being ritualized and all these things, and it's it's a two second shot. Yes, yeah, and that is the way he does it. I think is kind of brilliant in in, in stretches like that. So like that, or like when. Um, after the the death of the baby, which we'll we'll get to when mm-hmm. they they're doing the sort of body of Christ sacrament thing, mm-hmm. um, and you're like, oh, well, this is dawn of Christianity mm-hmm. going forward from there. Um, but it, it can be really disorienting because it moves so fast, and because he's using, um, you know, modern imagery, so it it doesn't click with a lot of people. Right, right. There are cell phones in this movie. And, yeah, there's and SWAT teams. Cameras and SWAT teams, yeah, yeah. But, but you're right, it, it does lend itself to a, a second and third viewing because there's no there's really no way, unless you know coming in what this movie is, there's really no way you're going to catch everything in the allegory the first time. Um so I guess I guess we should at least give some sort of like cursory, you know, review of of the allegory in yeah. case we're we're assuming anyone who's listening to this has seen the movie, obviously. Um 
or or is familiar with the Bible in some capacity. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. So, the the film is basically. Well, I, I don't even know how to describe the beginning because that's more tight. It seems like there's kind of a narrative within the film, and then the narrative that the film is working as an allegory of, and then kind of extra stuff on top of it. Yeah, um, because at a certain point, it seems to sort of break from the allegory because mm-hmm. it's like it's like history. It's like he specu- he, yeah, he's speculating on the future at, at a certain point. It's like this is where history leads. Um, so I'll just read, you know, uh, a paragraph or two here that I've got written of like the the main points of the allegory, if that's all right. Uh, the film starts with a badly burned house regenerating. The dark ashes on the walls and floors are seemingly magically restored to near-perfect condition. Jennifer Lawrence's character and the house that she occupies represent Mother Nature. This is shown through her clear concern for the house's structural and aesthetic integrity and the fact that she seems unable to leave the house. Her husband, Javier Bardem, uh, who represents God, comes and goes as he pleases, and when he returns, always appears as if out of nowhere. Indeed, the space outside the house stands for nowhere, or the void outside of material reality. This is further confirmed when, only after Bardem's character, the divinely pretentious poet, puts pen to paper and Ed Harris's character arrives lighting his cigarette with Promethean fire and is received with due skepticism by Lawrence, who has been working to restore the house that was previously burned down. We understand that Ed Harris represents Adam after we see Bardem inflicting a gaping wound in his side, after which his previously unmentioned mischievous, mischievous wife, Michelle Pfeiffer, shows up clearly representing Eve, who later breaks the poet's cherished crystal artifact, the fruit in the Garden of Eden. Their children, Cain and Abel, soon follow with the expected accompanying murder. Abel's death and subsequent funeral prompt uninvited guests who make themselves right at home as Mother Nature looks on, helpless and confused. The guest's behavior grows ruder, and they eventually break a sink in the kitchen despite several warnings, causing water to spray everywhere and all the guests to leave. The flood. Soon after, Lawrence becomes pregnant, and Bardeen gets inspired to write. As he begins to pen what we come to see as the New Testament, Lawrence says, referring to her pregnancy, I'll start working on the apocalypse. The new poem earns the poet instant fame, and the fans start showing up in unprecedented numbers and with unprecedented devotion. Slowly at first, but surely they begin to tear the house apart. As the fans take over the house, we see the conversion of Bardem's poem into dogma and its ritualization through dance. We also see men explaining the poem to groups of interested fans in a way that suggests the poem is being somehow perverted. The chaos in the house leads to soldiers bursting into the house to try to restore order, but only adding to the mayhem indicative of the age of industrial war. The house does indeed become a full-blown war zone. When Lawrence and Bardem finally manage to seclude themselves and she gives birth, Bardem insists that the people deserve to see the baby. God gets his way and the fans literally tear the baby apart and ritualistically eat the body. This seems to be roughly where the biblical allegory stops and Aronofsky begins to suggest the ramifications of the orientation to nature we have seen so far. The chaos at this point in the film and in the historical time the allegory points to is greatly accelerated. Lawrence is beaten beyond recognition and the house is falling apart. She finds Ed Harris's lighter, takes it to the basement and blows the house up. Bardem alone 
is unaffected. From Lawrence's chest, he pulls her heart, which crystallizes, and we realize we are right back where we were when the film started. Woo! So, uh, this comes from a conference paper, and just to, to drive home how people just didn't, things in the movie didn't click with people, is after you delivered this paper, uh, a lady who was attending the conference that's all she talked about was this allegory. Right, and this is this is the first two pages of, of the paper, and the paper's about, and we'll get into this, the paper's about audience mm-hmm. and, and how to make an effective argument about an issue like climate change. Uh, and, and yeah, I got several questions, and they were all about sort of... As a if little, you had invented this reading. A little bit challenging to like well what about this you know like uh, but you're right they, the, all the questions were centered on whether or not the biblical allegory was a correct reading or just people who had not seen that reading of it and were like oh wow that changes the way I view the film right and that, um, that's what yeah that's what the there was one woman who asked most of the questions she was like oh it makes a lot more sense now uh, <laughs> like, uh, is that your question? <laughs> right. Um, it, when the film breaks away from that allegory at the end and you have that kind of implementation of this cyclical, circular um, construction mm-hmm. that we get at the very beginning when that opens up with, you know, we see Jennifer Lawrence on fire. Um, it's it's not Jennifer Lawrence. Oh, is it not? No, okay. no. Um, it's not. It's not her at the beginning. It's not her at the end. And it's I, not her at the end. I did notice that, but I didn't notice yeah. at the beginning. And you see um, the poet putting the the heart, the apple, whatever. Represents yeah, it, I mean, on it's the pedestal. It, it, in some ways, it's the apple or the fruit in the Garden of Eden. It's um, also kind of it's Mother Nature's heart, you know, and it's also her love and maybe the love of all the followers, kind of admiration of worshippers, I guess. It's like the essence. Yeah, and and he literally puts it it's to think to take it to like a feminist reading. He put he takes her kind of undying, unquestioning love of him and puts it on a pedestal. Literally, like yeah, it's a trophy. Yeah, it, it, it looks like the thing that holds the baseball in the sandlot, the Babe Ruth. Oh yeah, 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 and and the heart, the crystal thing is roughly the size of a baseball and puts it up there. Right. Why do you think? Why do you think he uses this crystal thing uh, instead of like a? some sort of fruit or, you know, I don't know. That was a big question I had watching it. Uh, I watched it again this morning and I thought, why this crystal artifact? I don't, it seems to be kind of the essence of whatever it is that it represents, right? And and that's how we see um, Bardem's character. So when it's broken, Michelle Pfeiffer's character and Ed Harris, they... You know, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they go in and they they break it Mm -hmm. because they're playing with it or whatever it is they're doing. Um, You see him, he's real, that's the first time he yells at them and sort of admonishes them, tells them to leave. And you see him taking the pieces of it and squeezing them, like in his hands. Yeah, and you see blood. Yeah. And then at the very end, when he pulls, uh, you know, uh, Jennifer Lawrence's heart out, he does the same thing, takes her heart and sort of like squeezes it and then it becomes. And it becomes the the crystal thing, yeah. Um, Kind of. I, I don't know. I'm not sure why they would use that. But I will say that this film is not very... It's not a very um, positive view of God, I would say. No, I would say the villain of this movie is... 
the uh, the God of the Bible. Um, <laughs> yeah, is it? When, and a question I had after the first time I watched it is, where is the devil in this biblical allegory? And there's that very small moment, if you remember, where you see one of the pictures. Uh, a lot of the the fans who show up have this weird like baseball card looking picture of yeah. Javier Bardem's character and of the poet I guess we should call him and you see it on the floor and it's after all the shit has hit the fan and it's drawn there's like a it's like someone has like a middle schooler drawn on their teacher's yearbook or whatever uh, it's like devil horns on his character mm-hmm. and it's like it's almost, to me it seems like Aronofsky suggesting that for this radical evil to exist there doesn't even need to be a Satan character in this oh, in this allegory, or, or, you know, that, or that it's that it's us, that it's humanity. It, that, that's where the evil comes we, from. We we drew it onto God, but 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 you're right. It's it's hard to tell in this movie who's worse, humanity or God. Yeah, you know, and that's and that's kind of um, when we saw the film, and there there was the old lady behind us who was very much offended for Jennifer Lawrence's character because she mm-hmm. thought it was a sort of comedy of manners right. thing. Um, it's just sort of interesting to think about that way because it's that's so close to reading it in a productive way, I think. And it just sort of like upsets me that people can't make one more step and get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if that's where Jennifer Lawrence's sort of, or that's where her character's um, anger comes from throughout the film is this clash between what the people that show up are doing and the poet's uh, just refusal to make them leave. And she keeps asking him throughout the whole film, like, tell them to go, tell them to leave. And, and eventually... He, he, he has the outburst where he says, I don't want them to Yeah, leave. I don't want them to leave. Like, I want them to be here. I want their admiration. And it's so... Even when Ed Harris's character shows up, which I think in the credits are just called him and her. Or no, they're called... No, I think that's right. Or no, uh, he's him, and they're called man and woman. That's what it is. Okay. And so he shows up, and he's the Adam character. And one of the first things he says is, oh, you know, it's a, you know, boring job that I have. And the poet says, oh, I don't think he's boring at all. And he's like completely enraptured with this guy. It's because he is, it's like a, like an author, you know, he's the poet, an author fascinated by his own character. Oh yeah. And he's, he's completely just fascinated with all that stuff while the house is falling down around him. Right, and and Lawrence, you know, Mother Earth is, it's not even indifferent. Uh, It's like she can't understand the concerns of, you know, of the God character or especially of the humans. Uh, I think you see this very clearly when... um, it's right after there's like the big Cain and Abel fight mm-hmm. and the mourners start showing up, the family mourning the death of this, of the brother and Ed Harris, uh, man looks at him, looks to, uh, Lawrence and says, will you say something? He's like extremely sincere. You know, he says, will you say something? Could you, could you say something? We just heard this great speech from, uh, from Bardeem's character and and Lawrence is like at a complete loss for words. She because she because as Mother Nature she has no uh, real empathy, and we like every, all human emotion because we're seeing things from the point of 
point of view of Mother Nature, the whole human drama seems trite and trivial. Yeah. You know, um, and, and the only reason Bardem's character sympathizes with them in any way is because he created them, and he's just sort of curious. You know? <laughs> he just wants to see where it's going. Right. Um, and that's why going back to that Rex Reed review where he's talking about Aronofsky being obsessed with Jennifer Lawrence and that's why most of the film is a close up of her face or whatever I think it's more of what you're talking about where she's our way into the story she's our point of view we are supposed to experience the just radical violence uh, as as first person as possible Uh, the radical violence to Mother Nature, yeah, because and, and like you said, that impropriety that the the women in uh, behind yeah. us, the, the, they were probably in their sixties or seventies, uh, were experiencing. Like you said, it's like one step away from if you if you can make that uh, sort of intellectual leap to to the allegory, you see that he's using that impropriety to suggest humanity's impropriety on the planet, uh, as opposed to impropriety in a domestic household situation. Yeah, and and the the way that he connects, Aronofsky connects domesticity to this bigger picture of, of um, you know, environmental destruction. Um, it, it comes out in the way that Lawrence's character talks about the house when um, Eve, so Michelle Pfeiffer's character, is talking to her, and it's just the two of them and uh, Jennifer Lawrence's character says, well, I want to make a paradise about the house. Like, I love the work. I want to make a paradise. And Eve is there getting sloshed in the middle of the day for no reason, which is a, a theme among the humans in the, in the movie. Smoking and drinking. Smoking and drinking. And, and, uh, and fucking. Yeah, and Michelle Pfeiffer's character says, why didn't you just build a new house after the first one was destroyed? And it's a kind of interstellar attitude of just get a new home. Mm-hmm. Like, why are you doing all this work? Why did you rebuild um, and she says about the house, she's telling Jennifer Lawrence's character, you should have a baby, you should start a family, reproduce, that's what keeps the marriage together. And she says, all this, uh, everything else is just, and she pauses, she goes, setting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to think of the earth as just setting for right. everything that humans do. And, and like I was saying, from from Mother Nature's perspective, the the whole thing that that uh, Eve or Michelle Pfeiffer's character uh, finds significance and meaning is to Lawrence's character is distant and strange and kind of inconceivable. Yeah. Um, and and Aronofsky, to his credit, puts us in her shoes to experience that and 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 sort of asks us to to ask ourselves. What's more important here? You know, is, yeah. is this just setting, um, or or is this a? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I completely agree with if if Aronofsky is suggesting that there's like, you know, it, it's like there's this radical separateness between uh, the human drama and and the environment. And like I said, I think I said last week that phrase, the environment, yeah. kind of, uh, kind of gets what I'm talking about. That separateness of it, because uh, it's you know a stage on which and and it's almost like happen. yeah, it's almost like he's saying this view, this perspective of this separateness is why this movie is such a fucking nightmare because we cannot see 
that it is not separate. You know that that it is not just setting, and so and so the human drama we that that seems trite and everything is uh, this is actually the thing causing the uh, destruction. Yeah, and and the poet Bardem's character the whole time is just like you say, just watching it unfold. And he just wants to sort of see what the next step is. And he yeah. wants the adoration and he right. wants the people worshiping his creation. It's, it's, sort of it's as if the whole process of creation is to satiate his like spiritual boredom. Yeah. You know, it's so like, like he, glorify the creator of it. Right. Um, which yeah. is an interesting thing to think about in terms of Aronofsky as a filmmaker. Yeah. Saying, like, the creation is to glorify the person who created it, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Um, but there's a great line that kind of sums up um, the triteness, I guess, of or how trite we find all of the sort of household drama that's going on. And it's when Abel shows up. Um, it's the, the Gleason brothers. Um, the So the, the one Gleason brother who's playing the Abel character shows up. And Lawrence's character says, what are you doing here? And he says, what are any of us doing here? <laughs> it's like, why, why are any of us here? And it, and it kind of sums up that they're kind of playing this role within the, the poet's, you know, creation, or I guess this creation that he's let loose and now he's watching it unfold. And, and the fact that when the, they start fighting and, and they're going after each other and Jennifer Lawrence goes to the poet and is like, they're fighting. And he says, I know. <laughs> this kind of interesting thing of like, yeah, I'm aware. Like I know everything that's going on. But you're on. right. He's just sort of waiting around to see, see what happens, um, sort of amorally. Yeah. You know. Um, just out and of even curiosity. when he gets angry and involved, it's sort of perfunctory. You know. Yeah. Uh, um, which only happens a couple of times it's when they break the the crystal heart thing. That's when he gets angry, right? Um, and you know, representative representative of the fall of man and the the eating from the tree of knowledge and all that. And then when uh, Cain kills Abel, that's when he sort of steps in. He's like, "What did you do to your brother?" Mm-hmm. But even then, it's sort of he lets him go. It's kind of shitty. right, right. A- after he gives him the mark, on the, his mark forehead, yeah. the mark, yeah, the mark of Cain. Uh, yeah, but but then at the towards the end, he's he's like trying to rescue. Uh, Lawrence from the crowd and they seclude themselves before she gives birth and it's like he's it's like he cares yeah but, but then all, all he really wants is for her to have the baby so he can give yeah. the baby to the people it's like they they start to own him you oh, know yeah. the, the the created kind of control the creator after a while yeah so, so like I was saying this is not not the most positive view of religion in a lot of ways if you're looking at it Humanity has taken this thing and it's spiraled out of control, and the the creator is cool with that in, a lot, in some ways, as long as they keep um, they keep worshiping. Yeah. And, and the fact that Cain and Abel, this is uh, something I just wanted to point out, is the reason they're fighting in the narrative of the film is because their father has left a will that sets up a trust, and so whatever, however much money he has, I guess, in the, the narrative of the film. Um, so none of them can make a decision of what to do with the money without approval of the other, and that's what they're fighting about, which is kind of, I think, ironic with the content of the film, is you have these two brothers, uh, Cain and Abel figures, fighting over not wanting to be entered into a trust with one another so they can um, you know, work together in a, a sort of communal way. I see. Um, so it's sort of 
human selfishness. Well, I mean, the whole thing. several times you hear the people destroying the house justify their uh, stealing of household objects uh, with you know, sort of here. bastardizing what the poet says. He says, uh, uh, the poet says to share. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and they, uh, I think it happens where someone grabs the phone from Jennifer Lawrence and she's like, I was using that. And they say, the poet says to share. And then someone comes and grabs the phone from her. And so you see how it's like humanity, even if, even if the poet says something good, humanity just destroys it. We're, you know, we were, we've been talking a lot about dominion. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that you should take, you know, that you have control over something in humanity registers as you have the right to destroy something. Yeah. The same way, oh, you should share means you can take anything you want whenever you want it. And especially like the the scene where she's walking through the house when all hell's breaking loose and there's somebody like prying a door frame off the wall or something. She goes, "Why are you doing that?" And they go, "Proof we were here." Yeah, and then she stops an old woman who like steals a book or something, and she takes it back from her. And the old woman looks back and says, "Now I've got to find something else." <laughs> but, Which is just, yeah, uh, and thinking of. Uh, human creation is, you know, we just have, we need to do this, we need to, you know, dig this tunnel through a mountain or build this giant dam to prove we were here, right? that right. sort of thing. To, to um, whom are you proving that, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, a lot going on with that. Um, and, you know, Cain, after everyone leaves, after the whole Cain and Abel incident, Cain, who's Donald Gleason, comes back, is like, oh, they left you alone, too you do understand and he's like oh good luck and then leaves um which is i thought it was a interesting thing and the and the poet comes back and says he was holding the boy's hand when he died because i don't know if you notice this but every time the poet talks he makes whatever's happening about him it's a very sort of mm. he's very selfish and whiny throughout the whole film like when Lawrence is like, oh, you're supposed to be writing. And he's like, well, it was nice to not have to think about it, but I guess I'll go do it now. Right, right. <laughs> he's very fragile, kind of male ego going on. Um, and it made me think, um, with all these things he keeps saying throughout the film, of, oh, my wife doesn't drink, or we love having company, or we always say this house is... He's speaking he for her. He speaks for her, yeah. Um, it's this kind of interesting thing where you have... God as mansplainer. God as mansplainer, <laughs> but also God kind of gaslighting earth in a lot of ways of of just telling her like oh well they lost their child of course we have to invite them in we have mm-hmm. to be hospitable and we have to do all this and um it she just keeps sort of going along with it and playing host and being um domestic until they kill her child and that's right. kind of when everything goes off the rails yeah that's that's so. when she starts to assert herself and again, this is a recurring theme, I think, in all the movies that we're, we have talked about and maybe we'll talk about is this idea of Earth asserting agency and, you know, sometimes in more effective ways than others. Because um, what's, what's humanity's response when she does that? They beat the shit out of her. Right. They knock her to the ground and stomp on her and rip at her clothes and everything. And, and like, like we said with, like, The Day After Tomorrow, it's kind of a little bit silly earth is like this monster or the happening I think we mentioned the earth yeah. is like against you and and I think 
I think on the on the part of filmmakers, this is very well meaning, but it's it's almost like they do that to sort of speed up that slow violence, the idea of slow violence we've we've been talking about, and and I think in the end it sort of just reinforces this idea that there's a separation between the environment and humanity because if there weren't that separateness how could the environment attack humanity Uh, when in reality our behavior is is causing this and we are attacking ourselves Uh, and so to to have this distinct agent retaliating maybe just reinforces that distinction which is the problem that, that we think of these things in, in distinct terms. Um, but how do, I mean, I don't have a solution to that either. You know, like how do you, how do you show that? How do you show the interconnectedness of all things uh, in film? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Yeah. Well, with Aronofsky, it's you make it all happen in one circular house. <laughs> so you can have these sort of a central hub and you have all these disorienting shots happening. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that's one part of what makes the movie so jarring is that he is trying to do everything at once in a lot of ways. He's trying to tell like the story of Western civilization yeah. in so two the, hours. Yeah, so like the environment is the house, but it's also kind of Jennifer Lawrence, and Jennifer Lawrence has that she, weird connection to she, the house. She's like the embodiment of the house, the essence yeah. of the house, and she like can feel the heartbeat of yeah, the yeah. house. And yeah. there, there's a great scene that uh, happens a couple times first when she kind of gets the color just right on the wall when she's mixing the pigments. Right. And she sees the heart, you see the heart of the house are beating. And then the second time, which was, I I thought, a really good sort of symbolic, it's all symbolic in this film, but there's a a bee that's trying to get out of the kitchen and it dies on the windowsill. You know, she hears it like buzzing and then Mm. it sort of falls and dies. Yeah. And then she does the thing again where she sort of looks into the heart of the house and it starts to, to blacken and die. Um, and it's just all that stuff I think is really well done and, yeah. and really effective if you if you really think about it and I think it's that's one thing about when when the movie is referred to as a psychological horror film I think people are thinking about it in the wrong they're thinking of it as the wrong kind of psychological I think so you think of a psychological thriller as being like um seven Right, <laughs> something right. like that. Right. Um, right. Whereas this is more, you're not supposed to look at it from, like we're saying, you're not supposed to look at it from a human point of view. Right. I guess you're supposed to look at it. You're supposed to step outside of humanity and look at it as the actions of humanity, and you're not supposed to relate to it. Right? Yeah, it's like if the main character had been Cain and his aimless wandering after his expulsion from the house, then you might call it a psychological movie because it's a human perspective and he's dealing with this exile from God or something but the, yeah this is not about um, well I guess in some ways it's about human psychology but it, from from an outside perspective yeah and yeah and like you said most psychological thrillers are about you sort of grappling with some sort of twisted mind or troubled mind or yeah. something like that you, yeah you're trying to you know connect all the dots to find the serial killer before he kills again or whatever right. Um, whereas in this, it's it's can be really alienating because you're not supposed to you're not doing that same kind of exercise that we're so used to. It's a different kind of movie. No, therefore it's bad. Yeah, therefore it's bad. Right. 
It no, asks you I, to watch in a different way, therefore, fuck this movie. I, I feel in a lot of ways the same way I felt about First Reformed in, in my respect for it because it, it takes some balls to just say, uh, I'm going to make a movie, you know, first of all, whose villains are humanity and God, um, and he just really rides the allegory the whole time. And uh, like I said, a, a lot of people hate this movie, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I, at the very least, I respect his willingness to do something different mm-hmm. and to to. I mean, it's it's clearly very well made. He, I think, he did exactly what he wanted to do. You know yeah. what I'm saying? I don't think there's any sort of pandering or or. Um, concessions made like he, I think he had the idea and he he made it yeah and it, it kind of that's connected to the fact that Jennifer Lawrence was nominated for the the Razzie for worst actress and Bardem too um, which is ridiculous to me on a number of levels um, yeah I mean Bardem specifically because I think he's the menacing actor of our time well people people can't people can't dissociate like they can't distinguish between the character is not pleasing, therefore it's bad acting. You know they, they, that yeah. they think they think because the character is not likable, and it's the leading, it's one of the leading characters. Because he's not likable, it's a bad acting job. It's like well, yeah. When really you should be asking, what, what are the it? intentions? Well, also, what is it in within you that makes you dislike a character that is supposed to represent? the earth <laughs> like wh- wh- why why are you uncomfortable relating to or, this character or, or no why are you especially you know for a, a religious viewer you know why am i uncomfortable relating to a movie that the, in which the bad guy is god and played really well by bardem i think he's really like i said he he he's the best Bad God, yeah. Like, well, well uh, Anton, he does Anton Sugar, right? Which is very intimidating, sort yeah. of menacing character. He was in the Bond movies too. Yeah, and then he was that one. really creepy Bond villain with mm-hmm. the that had lost his jaw or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then he's this really kind of weird, jealous, kind of uh, nefarious, plotting God and mother. Mm-hmm. I mean, just that scene alone where she's had the baby and he's just sitting in the chair staring at her, waiting for her to fall asleep so he can take it. Yeah. That is, that's probably the scariest part of the whole film just because of that look on his face and it doesn't change and it's just so mm-hmm. relentless. Intent. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and Lawrence, I mean, the her part is purposefully written really lean. She doesn't have a whole lot of lines really and she gets... Part of the, the the domestic drama of it is that she gets steamrolled the whole time, and that's by right. design. And so, and so, like, like ninety percent of her acting is acting offended. Yeah, and telling people to leave and yelling right. stop and things like that. That one part when things are starting to go bad before the the flood, that when the sink breaks, she's just walking around the house going, "Hey, hey, stop!" Right. And, it, and it's like she she got that Razzie because people cannot. It, it's like they think because she displays uh, displeasing emotions does not mean she displays 
emotion poorly. Yeah. It doesn't mean she's a bad actor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, because she's, I mean, in the, the scope of the narrative, she's the only one that's not acting. Because you have all the, you know, all the people coming in that are sort of the creations of the poet, and she's the one that's not in on the joke. Mm-hmm. So, of course, she's going to feel left out and threatened yeah, and out like of place. She's like the only one he, or, or maybe he did. It's hard to say, did he, so, so you, you, at a certain point you realize that the action of the film always happens right after Bardem gets inspired to write. Yeah. So it's like you see him in his office early in the film and as soon as he puts pen to paper and it's like, I think there's a moment where he's, he's about to erase something, but then he doesn't. And then Ed Harris shows up. Yeah, it's like it's like he knew this was a bad idea, but now let's just see where it goes. Yeah. Um, but and then uh, he gets inspired after that first night with Ed Harris, and then the next morning Michelle Pfeiffer shows up, and so you see that what happens is a uh, is is his art, his poem, his poems, and I'm not sure is is there anything that you recognize that. Leads us to believe that Lawrence's character is in some way a like his creation, a creation yeah, of his. I mean, because I, know, I mean, because we even call the Earth creation, you know. Yeah, um, keeps getting recreated in a, a new form. But she seems to be in some way part of him through the through the crystal artifact. Yeah. Like he he needs he needs her in a much more direct way than he needs humanity. Yeah, which is... I don't know, and it kind of implies this sort of reincarnation. Or it's like, yeah, if he's a poet, she's like the paper. She's the inspiration, right? That's what they call her in the Kristen Wiig's character when she shows up. Yeah, she's like the canvas. So it's like, what good is an artist without the canvas? So that's why... um, that's why I say he needs her because he can't really put his poems into being without her. Um, and so each, you know, each new iteration, you know, after the house burns is like this, this new book that the the poet is writing. Well, it does kind of go back to this idea of, of viewing of, of him viewing her in the house as, just an environment, like just the the stage on which all this drama can unfold, uh-huh. and he can't. The people can't show up and have these these trials and tribulations without somewhere for it to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of it, it kind of goes back to that, and he does seem to need her because, by extension, he needs the stage for everything to happen. Exactly. Um, and but I don't know. That doesn't really explain her um, how he needs her love and, and admiration and how she's so sort of single-mindedly But he, he seems to be, to be much more appreciative of the love and adoration of humans yeah. than of her, for yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. He's, he's very short with her and mm. uh, ignores her for literally anyone else who comes in. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that when things start going to hell... Um, he tells her this is this is not about us it's about them right you know this is it's not about just me and you anymore we have to worry about all of these other people 
same thing when their when their child dies and he says, "Well, we have to find a way to forgive them. Mm-hmm. We can't let the child die for nothing. We have to forgive them." And she yeah. says, "That's when she snaps and she says, you're insane." Yeah. And she uh, it's interesting to me that she the uh, the way she blows the house up is she finds the lighter that Ed Harris brought yeah. that she then like sort of hid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know she she hides his lighter and she hides Eve's green panties yeah behind things I, I, I don't yeah. know what that means but anyway she finds the lighter and goes down to the basement it made me think of how uh, in first reformed the suicide vest is in the basement uh, you know Michael's suicide vest it's in the garage it's is it not down below not in a garage it's like buried under stuff oh, but okay it's, it's out uh, in the garage. for some reason I was thinking it was like in a basement and I was thinking about that, uh, you know, the fact that she blows the house up from the basement is just like <laughs> kind of repressed, you know, destructive impulse. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, there's there's all sorts of crazy, like, symbolic stuff happening. So Cain kills Abel. Abel's blood leaks through that weird vaginal hole, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, like original sin hole in the right, floor. Right, right. And it drips down um, into the basement, and it reveals the door that goes to the the furnace or the gas tank or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. And that was a really interesting part of it because it's sort of, I think this kind of symbol of, of fossil fuels in a lot of ways mm-hmm. where she goes in and you have the tank with the gas in it and it's very dark and it's secluded and no one, no one knew it was there. It took, you know, it had to be discovered and then you see the frog kind of hop through. Yeah. And in my head, I just went dinosaurs, <laughs> like hop, reptile hopping through. Um, it made me the the frog to me because because I can't help but associate it with biblical things made me think of like the plague. I think it's an Exodus. It could be. Uh, in fact, I know it's Exodus eight two because that's all throughout uh, Magnolia. Exodus oh, yeah. eight two, and then the frogs come. Uh, but yeah, like a, a a plague of some sort, or I, you know, I don't know. Maybe, uh, but but it took you know finding that reservoir of gas or whatever at the center of it um you know subterranean down below and that's what's going to ignite the final end right Right. and and i think i think uh ed harris's lighter like i said when i was reading is sort of this promethean fire which which is associated with technology right man's man's dominion his harnessing the elements of the world to control his environment and and so it's interesting that the house blows up with, like you said, penetrating yeah. uh, it down into the, the core of the earth plus, uh, the plus human man, innovation, man's technology, basically. human innovation. Exactly. Um, it's uh, Timothy Morton and Andreas Malm talking about the, the patenting of the steam engine as the, when the world ended, that kind of thing. <laughs> and, um, you know, after she finally snaps at the end and everyone is beating her while she's on the ground, I, mm-hmm. to me that kind of was symbolic of industrialization happening so quickly and just being like, we will have dominion over you. And soon after that is when you get the explosion, right? When she finally is like, right. this has gone too far. And and the scene where they're beating her and like tearing her apart, I, I, I want to go back to Rex Reed's shithole review. Uh, he, he sort of implies, he says something about a wet dream, or it's like it's not even a wet dream, or it's, it's more wet dream than bad dream. And I think he's referring to 
how Lawrence is sort of sexualized, uh, like, in the opening shot. Yeah, against her will, we might add. Like, it's never like she's just putting it out there. Right, right but but he, he, the review implies that Aronofsky is just sort of ogling his girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's, to me, it's very clear that her physical presence and uh, her beauty are used to to be synonymous with the beauty of the natural world and then we see it utterly torn apart you know her mm-hmm. face is destroyed they're like tearing her clothes off so i don't think it's this crass uh, ogling i th- i think i think it's uh, the shots of her i think it's the, within the first minute or two when she's walking around the house and you you can like see through her dress and um, I don't think that's just some like oh let's let's show some yeah, yeah. Let's show some skin it's yeah. not Red Sparrow right it's <laughs> it's something else um, and when people comment on it it's it only ever happens in kind of negative connotation so when the able character comes up and he's you know ogling her <laughs> nice and he's like view. nice view which is uh, you know, if you're thinking about her as being representative of the natural world, that makes mm-hmm. sense. And then Michelle Pfeiffer's character at the funeral, when all these people showing up in the middle of the night, she's like, can't you put on something decent? Mm-hmm. Can't you cover yourself? I, one of the funnier parts is when the guy uh, at the party, just like the quintessential douchebag, oh, yeah, is yeah. like hitting on her. It's like, let's go for a walk. And it, it's almost like the guy... You know, hit, uh, the metaphor seems to be the guy uh, hitting on the girl at the party is this sort of uh, businessman. Yeah, you know, yeah, making you don't know it, what I can do for you, right? Kind of right, thing. you know, trying to exploit the earth. Uh, and, and that's that scene is so great because, well, you know, great for reading purposes because he grabs her and she says, "Let go of me," and he goes, "Why?" Yes. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? Um, Does so, he calls her? It's like, I can't even remember what it is, but it's just like so nasty. They calls her like an arrogant cunt, I think is what yeah, it is. Yeah, something like um, that. Um, and that's, I think that's right before, is that when the flood, is that when they it's break right the It's right when that happens, yeah. yeah. And um, she yells at everyone to, to get right. out. Um, so yeah, I mean, and just the, I think something that some people would find uncomfortable in the film if they haven't seen it already is just, um, it would be really easy to read the movie as being kind of misogynist in different ways. So you could do like a hardcore misreading like Greg's read and say, oh, he just wanted to put his girlfriend in skimpy clothes or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you also have things like when she gets beaten, that's really kind of makes me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. The only thing I can compare it to is sort of the scene in um, Inglorious Bastards when Christoph Waltz is choking that woman to death. Mm-hmm. Very sort of visceral, yeah. kind of makes you uncomfortable scene. Um, but also, there's the weird kind of almost rape sex scene. I was going to mention that, yeah. Um, which is, it's when the whole time that Eve has been there, Michelle Pfeiffer's character, she's been kind of picking on on Jennifer Lawrence's character saying, well, why doesn't your husband want to have sex with you? Sort of implies that maybe he's gay or that he doesn't love her. Yeah, or or that she's, like, not trying hard enough is sort Mm -hmm. of the thing that she keeps coming back to. He's like, well, if he doesn't want to do it with you, then maybe something's wrong with him, or Mm -hmm. maybe you're not doing it right, that kind of thing. So she finally snaps, and when she confronts him, she's like, you can't even fuck me, and then they proceed to do it after he kind of grabs her. Yeah, it's very very aggressive at first, for sure. 
And it's very, it's just sort of, that relationship, I think, is one of the films, one of the parts of the film that I kind of, I don't really get, I guess. And it just sort of seems kind of problematic in some ways that you have the Earth, who the whole film just wants to be alone with the poet, right? Um, But it's also in a very sort of sexualized way, like she wants him to be with her and to to have sex with her and all this sort of stuff. Um, And he keeps sort of shunning her and it takes her finally being like well you won't even fuck me and then it's violent and weird when it does happen Mm -hmm. but Um, but i don't i'm not sure it's hard to say given i mean bardeem's character is the bad guy in the movie so so i don't think we're in a position as the viewer to assume that that aronofsky is endorsing in any way this sort of behavior because this guy sucks he's terrible you know (laughs) Uh, and and anything that the men, the humans say, we know is terrible just because everything they do in this movie is terrible. Um, it's just weird to, that she sort of endorses it after the fact, right? She wakes up, and she's like, "Oh, I'm pregnant," and then everything, and she's happy about yeah, it. Yeah, and everything's yeah. perfect. Yeah. Uh, so I could see people being uncomfortable sure, with sure. that. Um, and talking about the the end, and this is something I meant to bring up when we were talking about this. Um, a while ago but I forgot about it is when he's carrying her so this is after the house is blown up and she's everyone has died she's you know burnt really badly and he's fine because he's God so he's not injured at all and he's carrying her and he's sort of explaining to her in this kind of roundabout way what's going on and she says who are you and he says I am I and he pauses for a second he says you are home and it's kind of this idea of telling her, well, you're home, but also this idea of you are home. Like, right. that's what you are. Yeah, capital H. Um, and it's, it, that just kind of, I, I don't know if I caught that the first time I saw it. I didn't. Um, yeah. But this is that idea of, you know, I need you, right? You are home, right? Um, and the, the capital H thing is, is interesting, because have you seen Aronofsky talk about the way he did the title? Card? Or the exclamation point. But everything's... Lowercase, lower except lower for the case. H in, in him, right? Javier Bardem. Is oh, him. yeah, yeah, I do remember that. Uh, and, and I like the I like the exclamation point, too, mm-hmm. uh, because for a few reasons. First of all, the movie is just sort of a rant. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it is exclamatory. It's, uh, yeah. Uh, but also, I noticed the first... The first and the last line of the movie are baby. Oh, yeah. But it's like, the way I wrote it was baby, question mark, exclamation point. Yeah. Like, baby? Right. She's looking She's looking for baby. And and so, uh, it's, almost, it's almost like uh, Aronofsky is lo- uh, sort of lamenting the lost mother uh, or, I don't know. There's some sort of interplay between mother and child with that uh, exclamation point at the end of, of mother. It's it's like something the lost child screams. Oh, so like baby, mother? Right, like, right. That makes sense. Um, something else that was interesting is, is Kristen Wiig as the agent, like as his agent. She's like a PR sort of thing, yeah. And uh, the scene where she's shooting the people <laughs> that are bound on the floor. Right. She's just sort of walking through with the pistols just like yeah. blowing and people away. And she gets blown to hell. Yeah. yeah. And that whole sequence is, is just really 
jarring traumatic. and traumatic. Traumatic. <laughs> yeah. Um, especially the part that, that sticks out to me is the uh, the one soldier or police officer or whatever that tries to help Jennifer Lawrence mm-hmm. and drags her off to safety as there's bombs and everything going off. And he's it's the first time she's encountered anyone that's trying to take care of her whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he just gets blown away, gets right. shot in the head in this rain of bullets and, and yeah. chaos. Um, which was kind of interesting, the sort of representative of environmental movements, right, or save the earth or whatever, and mm-hmm. that just gets steamrolled by all this chaos that's going on around. Yeah, it. that's a good, good thought. Well, it's not a good thought. It's, it might be an accurate thought. It's not a. That's not a, a good that's a thought. thought. <laughs> of all the thoughts you've had, that's one of them. Um, so it's just a depressing. That put that little, you know, two minute section yeah. is just very depressing. Oh yeah. Let's uh, let's talk about audience. Let's do it. Uh, let me read this quote from Judith Butler, and I think that'll get us started. This is from her book, Frames of War, When is Life Grievable? Uh, she's talking about the idea of nonviolence. She says... The claim of nonviolence not only requires that the conditions are in place for the claim to be heard and registered, there can be no claim without its mode of presentation, but that anger and rage also find a way of articulating that claim in a way that might be registered by others. In this sense, nonviolence is not a peaceful state, but a social and political struggle to make rage articulate and effective, the carefully crafted fuck you. So I definitely think Mother is a uh, carefully crafted fuck you to <laughs> humanity. Mostly mostly sort of uh, kind of conservative, the, the conservative Christian view of the world. Again, the whole dominion thing, this idea of dominion as right to destroy... Um, so if we uh, I'll read just a second here again Uh, if we apply the essence of Butler's thought to discourse on climate change we can see that Aronofsky's film will only be minimally effective it is certainly a fuck you and in a limited way a well crafted one but it fails egregiously in terms of audience that is the rage and anger of mother do not find a way of articulating its claim in a way that might be registered by others This is true in a couple different ways. First, the worldview Aronofsky critiques through his film is likely not the worldview of his audience. That the mass of conservative Christian American churchgoers are, after their sermon and Sunday lunch, loading the kids up in the minivan and heading to the local art film venue to critically scrutinize the latest offer from Darren Aronofsky is highly doubtful. Aronofsky's commentary then merely preaches to the choir. I like the the mixing of religious metaphors. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was thinking that as, as you were talking about that, of um, it does kind of walk that line of, of preaching to the choir. Right. So it's a, it's a carefully crafted fuck you, but it's shared with all, all the people that have the same opinion that are exactly. screaming the same fuck you. So what right. is it, is it really accomplishing very and, much? And, and like I said, you're all, uh, when I watched it this morning, I'm almost willing to forgive it for those, for those faults, because I just, agree in, in like so many ways that like 
uh, I think he's right about the basic orientation of humanity to the planet. Um, but then the question becomes, so what? Uh, okay, you have this position. And I think I said this uh, at some, on some other episode. Wendell Berry has a, a great question where he says, how do we get from a public position to effective action? And and I'm not sure... I, I think I, I say I can forgive this movie for the thing, for the failures in audience, because I agree with the movie um, and I with the with the movie's position we share a position um, but I'm not sure what the movie does in service of effective action if if anything Ma- makes you more angry maybe <laughs> you know uh, and, and maybe that leads to action I don't know but still it's a very limited number of people who are going to uh, register this critique. Yeah, and, uh, and that's the trick, right? So we we talked about Interstellar, which did reach a super wide audience, right? And at some point, I guess we'll have to go back and do like Avatar, or like yeah, yeah. Wall-E, or you know, films that people would have actually, a lot of people would have kind of flocked to and seen. Sure, sure. Um, so it, it, you know, it can be kind of disheartening, but at the same time, like you're saying, you have that feeling of you know, I, I agree with this film. I think it's well made. I think it's making a really important point. Um, but there is the fact that, you know, Aronofsky's not really making films for the post-church Sunday crowd, yeah, right? Yeah, um, And also the fact that his film is so dense and difficult to get at because, you know, we have First Reformed, which is by comparison really on the nose with what it's talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, interstellar, you know, even more so, just with a, a bullshit message. Um, it, but we have Mother, which is very—you have to think about it, right? Like, mm-hmm. like we were saying, we talked about it for the whole day after we saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, not only are you telling people things they don't want to hear, but you're doing it in a way that's hard for them to understand, right? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of double trouble. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, just kind of. But it's but it's also possible uh, that we talked about first first reformed being kind of aware of its limitations. Uh, you know, the idea that uh, Toller uh, is sort of a stand-in for Schrader, and his sort of indie film audience is reflected by Toller's uh, six-person congregation. So he understands he's preaching to a limited number. Of people, and that's sort of the point, is that he needs to be preaching to more people, um, and, and so and so. First Reformed is very aware of it. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't seem like Mother is, but it also um, it doesn't even really seem like it doesn't address it. It's like it doesn't care. Um, so so that's sort of what I think I'm trying to get at when I say, you know, what's it going to do for effective action? Um, if it's if it's talking to the people who already believe what it believes, so what? Um, and and I was just coincidentally this week I was listening to uh, John Prine's first album, and I, I thought this album sort of does what what Mother does not do uh, because John Prine, if you don't know, is a sort of uh, country folk. Uh, 
singer, has been for 40 or 50 years. And uh, his first album, though, self-titled, is he, he just sounds like like his songs are just like cowboy campfire songs. He just he sounds like your grandpa, you know, singing. Uh, but then he has a song like Sam Stone, which is it's it's exactly that first album. It's it's like anti Vietnam War. It's anti coal in uh, Muhlenberg County. Yeah. Um, it's uh, the one song is your flag decal won't get you into heaven anymore. It's uh, I'd, I'd call that anti-patriotic religiosity. <laughs> um, and all this while he sounds like, you know, the typical country singer who, who with all the, you know, rural conservative connotations that that might have. Um, and so he's speaking in the language of his audience. And, and there's a fine line, I think, between speaking in the language of your audience and pandering to your audience, you know, um, but I think pandering would imply uh, omitting, you know, you know, not saying the fullness of of your message, omitting things to make it more palatable for your audience. While whereas, you know, speaking the language of your audience, uh, just like like Butler says, is do is is you know showing commitment to your message, but. Uh, doing it in a way to where your message can be registered by people who need to hear it as opposed to people who are in on the joke already. Yeah. Um, And just think of a, you know, a a comparison between any of those John Prine songs and a song like uh, Chicken Fried by Zach Brown Band, uh, which if you go down on Broadway in Nashville on any weekend, you'll hear Wagon Wheel and Chicken Fried about a million times each. And have you ever listened, like, paid attention to the, what he's talking about in Chicken Fried? I don't even know if I've ever heard that song. Oh, oh my God! How you know? It's, it's <laughs> I've one heard of the Body Like songs. a Back Road, though. Oh my God! It's one of the worst songs ever made. Um, and it's funny because you always hear the the qualification of like, well, you know, but Zach Brown's a really talented guitar player. It's like, yeah, fine, but he wrote a shitty song. It's like so was John Mayer. Yeah, so was John Mayer, <laughs> but he writes songs that maybe aren't the greatest. Uh, but so Chicken Fried is basically pandering all of country music pandering in one song mm. so the the chorus is you know i've got chicken fried cold beer on a friday night a pair of jeans that fit just right like all, all the all the greatest hits there's a that great song by bo burnham pandering his, it's his literally song. if yeah. you listen to chicken fried you'll be like this is what he's referencing exactly and what always stuck out to me is the last verse is just like Oh, and also we love the troops, and we support the troops, and we love the military. I had to get that in there somewhere. And it, it's like really dramatic, and the whole song slows down, and it's very like emotional. It's like, and also the troops. Um, and to to take that and compare it to John Prine and uh, Sam Stone talking about how you know America kind of failed its veterans, mm-hmm. and just the the chorus of that of Jesus Christ died for nothing, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. It's just like it blows the whole world open. Yeah. Um, but but he does it in this sort of pleasing harm you know uh, in melody and three chords yeah like it, every other song country song you've ever heard yeah so it just sort of shows you that I would say both both men talented songwriters one of them using their power for good and the other for evil <laughs> yeah um, uh, and sort of somewhere in between this and I, and I talked about this if you remember at the uh, conference we went to is and when we went to the conference this was much more recent the 
Eminem's uh, uh, appearance on the BET Awards, mm-hmm. and this was right after Trump's election, and he did that freestyle that was like viral for for a while, and it's sort of a, a literal fuck you to Trump, mm-hmm. and, and I've got it written here. He says, "Any fan of mine who's a supporter of his, I'm drawing in the sand a line. You're either for or against." And if you can't decide who you who you like more, and you're split on who you should stand beside, I'll do it. I'll do it for you with this. Fuck you. Um, and so, I, the the same is true of, of mother. It's like the same way you're not loading the kids up in the minivan to go watch Darren Aronofsky films. I seriously doubt the intended audience for for that for Eminem's rap is being reached. Via BET, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But uh, interestingly, uh, I, I listened to a new a newer song off of Kamik- Eminem's Kamikaze, and he is talking about he sort of regrets these lines. He says uh, that line in the sand was it even worth it? But if I could go back, I'd at least reword it and say I empathize with the people this evil serpent sold a dream to that he's deserted. Um, so so even Eminem is like what well, even Eminem is aware that this sort of vitriol is sort of innate of nothing but rage. His own his own particular stance is all that's being bolstered by going on TV and saying fuck you to Donald Trump. Um and and in in these lines he's sort of implying that Maybe we should work to understand why these people <laughs> voted, you know, for what he, who he calls the evil serpent. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know, and I don't know who is really listening to Eminem for political <laughs> content. <laughs> yeah. But uh, anyway, all that to say, uh, audience, audience is a big deal. I think in terms of. Uh, Political art, for sure. Yeah, it's like Eminem's music, for the most part, I think, is consumed by like amateur MMA fighters, <laughs> and you know the kind, like he's saying the kind of people that have, would have voted for Trump, like uh-huh. young, angry, disaffected, usually impoverished, usually white people living in the dying parts of the Rust Belt. Mm-hmm. Like those are the people that are running out to buy the new Eminem record um, because. For like you were talking about with his uh, the rap on the BET where it's, it's that kind of anger like they connect with that kind of anger mm-hmm. right and that sort of um, just fuck you to the world kind of right. attitude for a lot of ways which is you know led them led many of them I think to vote for Trump of you know fuck it burn it down let's see what happens kind of thing um, which is you know maybe not the most enlightened political commentary ever but <laughs> right. um, but. Yeah, so I think it's good when an art, any artist shows that they're thinking about their audience and thinking about not just the way that they think they're being consumed, but are thinking about who actually consumes them, um, I think is, is really important. Because it's one thing to be like, I love all my fans, and I'll do anything for my fans, and being like, some of my fans are assholes, and some of my yeah. fans, like, I need to do more to think about what motivates them to like my music. And and it's, it's pro- it also be. probably... Uh, important to note that Eminem doesn't have to have fans anymore. Like he's set for life. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't have to do anything. He's he not up and coming. Out. You know, he doesn't yeah. have to pander anymore. Uh, if he ever did, you know, it, because 
because money's not really a an aspect of it anymore. Um, he's got nothing to lose, or it's not that he doesn't have anything to lose. He just can't lose it. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah he, he's made the uh, prerequisite amount of money to where you're just bulletproof. Even right. if you do something terrible, you're, that's, you'll be fine. It, it's it's called uh, fuck, fuck you money. Fuck you yeah, money. Fuck you yeah, money. I mean, that's what he's got. That's why he's carefully crafting fuck yous. Yeah. Um, maybe the first time uh, and only time Judith Butler will be used to uh, explain Eminem or vice versa. Um, there's somebody out there. I'm oh, sure. there's that. Yeah, you're right. Um, lest we get through an entire episode and not mention Wendell Berry. I thought it was going to be Curtis White. <laughs> That's where I thought we were going. Uh, here's a thought going back to Mother. Um, Wendell Berry, he's <laughs> that made it sound like Wendell Berry was writing about Mother. Definitely not. Uh, Wendell Berry says Christian organizations to this day remain largely indifferent to the rape and plunder of the world and its traditional cultures. Later, he says, I see some virtually catastrophic discrepancies between biblical instruction and Christian behavior. So there's a way to read Mother that is not dismissive of religion itself or Christianity itself, but of the particular... Uh, interpretation or the results of the particular interpretation that we have (laughs) sort of uh, always had. (laughs) Uh, It might be naive to assume that there is still some sort of hope within that pretty locked in uh, ideology. Uh, But I think that discrepancy between biblical instruction and Christian behavior is like the only place of hope. And I think that's what Ghosh, Amitav Ghosh, is referring to uh, in some way, in some in some ways, uh, when he talks about, as we've mentioned several times, religious institutions being like one of the last hopes for effective action on climate change uh, because, because of the... Uh, uh, their lack of limitations and 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 still wide reach in a lot of places. Yeah, like the Catholic Church or atheists on YouTube. <laughs> you know, religious institutions. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's a there's a a, a a wide range of religious institutions. Yeah. Uh, uh, Scientology. Yeah. This idea of I think we should just open up the uh, Christian re-education camps. That's where we 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 fix all of the. The trouble, yeah, and, you know we're we're giving this from. Uh, <laughs> we'll be like the, uh, like the pray the gay away camps, except it'll be like pray the dominion away, <laughs> pray the dominion away. <laughs> um, and you know, right now we're uh, in an apartment complex that's between a Catholic church and a giant Pentecostal church that's being expanded to twice its size Hell as we yeah. speak. <laughs> um, so pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's that's all Wendell's opinion on it. Anything else that we haven't touched on? Um, I don't know if there's anything in the movie that we that is of importance that we missed the the weird sparkly yellow powder that she drinks like her medicine. Yeah, that's kind of unexplained. I saw something that tried to explain it as um, Charlotte Perkins Gilman's yellow wallpaper is sort of like a a shot of 
domestic uh, delusion or something, whatever it may be. I don't know why. I do know Aronofsky is super fond of that weird sparkly twinkly effect that he uses because it comes up in Noah when they're doing the, uh, what's it called, the tefillin or whatever, the the snake Mm -hmm. skin around the arm thing. And also, if you ever watch uh, One Strange Rock, then that uh, documentary series I was talking about uses it a lot in that. And he just produced it, so it's not like he's making the creative right, decisions. Right. But it, I, I did notice that kind of sparkly, weird special effect that he uses. Hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the she keeps drinking it whenever she has these attacks, and it just kind of goes away after that. She pours it out when she finds out she's pregnant, and that's kind of the last we see of it. So I don't really know. Um, there's also that reminded me of the use of alcohol that reminded me of first reformed, uh, in both these movies, uh, alcohol sort of used as a metaphor for like poison, you know, we poison the body with alcohol the way, you know, humans poison the, yeah. Cause every time the humans are together and mother, they're drinking, right? Like as soon as Adam gets there, he's, he busts out, or, you know, Ed Harris's character busts out his whiskey or whatever it is yeah. from his bag and yeah. they just keep drinking the whole time mm-hmm. um, so yeah I mean a big part of human culture right <laughs> yeah um, I think have we have we knocked it out yeah I believe so that seems to be everything so yeah we'll go ahead and uh, announce that for next next time we're going to be talking about the 2016 film Captain Fantastic directed by uh, Matt Ross mm-hmm. first time director I believe or Gavin Belson from Silicon Valley uh, starring uh, V. Joe Mortenstein <laughs> um, so we'll be talking about that it's a film we've both seen again right so good that we've already seen it at least right. once right um, have to rewatch it for this but I, I look forward to it I remember liking it but at the same time, there's a lot of, I don't know, interesting issues that come up with yeah. that. Yeah, and, and for those of you, if you are if you are listening to this, uh, and you are... <laughs> if you're out there, if anyone's out there, <laughs> right. screaming into the void. Uh, and, and following along, uh, just a heads up, I'll be making heavy reference in addition to uh, Captain Fantastic to the film's Wanderlust. The 2008 comedy, um, I think it's 2008, uh, goofy comedy, but I think it has a lot of interesting parallels with Captain Fantastic, and probably some reference to Rebecca Miller's film, uh, The Ballad of Jack and Rose. The common thread between these movies is their depictions of counterculture, and sort of the assumptions it has, the, the movies have about audience uh, in relation to countercultures. So uh, I think that's probably where, at least in part, we'll go next week. At least that's where I'm going to try to take it. Yeah, so, <laughs> so while Kevin Fantastic will be sort of the, the focus, we will be touching on these other films. Um, because, like you're saying, this view of what does and what should a counterculture look like, and mm-hmm. is, it, is it really a counterculture? Is it really effective in any sort and, of way. And the question we keep asking is, is it possible for a film to not be hypocritical in its promotion of an anti-technology counterculture? Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, just the fact that it's a film to begin with. Exactly. Say, of course not. Um, so, we'll be looking at those films. 
Um, so if you do watch Wonderlust, it's Paul Rudd, Jennifer Aniston. It's pretty funny. Yeah, it's not bad. Yeah, it's Paul Rudd. He's he's kind of like out of water. You sort of yeah. He's a safe bet. Yeah, he's like uh, it's like eating cotton candy. You just don't worry about it. Just, <laughs> just eat it. It's fine. Um, so yeah, Captain Fantastic. And then from there, who knows? Yeah, we'll see. We're, we we we're, we're almost exhausted the list of movies. Our we, beginning list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we, you know, we got through four of them now. I guess. Let's let's just take a shit on Avatar sometime soon. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I I, I kind of don't want to watch it again because it's so long. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, definitely could. And we sort of had weird themes come up. Um, so with Captain Fantastic, we're talking about counterculture. And yeah. Tonight, yeah. I don't know what it even was. Audience, I audience guess. and artistry and uh, rude manners of house guests. <laughs> rude manners, domesticity. Um, with Interstellar, it was just uh, how shitty that movie was. <laughs> it was uh, major Hollywood films, you know, having this shitty social vision. Right. Um, first Reformed was just like this movie rules. Everyone should watch it. That that was kind of the reason. And, and we keep talking about how eventually we'll we'll go back. We might have to go back and do like a part two just on First Reformed and yeah. just talk about it some more since we're such uh, stands to make another Eminem reference uh, of that movie. Um, so yeah, I guess that's everything. So Captain Fantastic next week. Uh, follow us on Twitter. Anthropod tweets at Anthropod tweets. This will be available on, uh, as all other episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes. And uh, I guess that's the end. That's it. P.S. I love you. <laughs> <laughs>